welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of Who Cares What's the Point, the podcast about mind for people who think. My name is Saab Johal, your host and producer of the podcast. You can follow the show on Twitter at WCWTP or go to whocareswhatsthepoint.com for more details about the show. You can find us on iTunes, the Google Play Store or Stitcher and you can also follow me at Saab on Twitter too. In this last show of season one, I have a conversation with Dr. Toby Mundell, Senior Lecturer in Sport and Exercise Science at Massey University in New Zealand. Now, Toby and his colleagues have been looking at the link between levels of hydration and how it affects pain perception. And this is important because chronic pain is a huge health issue with around about one in five, one in six people suffering from some form of chronic pain. And that has a big implication for loss of productivity and the medical costs associated with that. So have a listen to the conversation between myself and Toby about some of the research that he and the team that he's been involved with have been doing looking at the relationship between levels of hydration and our pain experience. Thanks for joining us today, Toby. Um, I was wondering if we could start off with perhaps explaining how you got involved and interested in this area of research in the first place. Yeah, thanks, Sarp. Um, well, this area of research um, follows one of my research programs, which is um, the, the hydration platform. Um, and I, I've got to admit that ever since uh, uh, being a I guess, a teenager, um, I've been very sensitive to a lot of things. And one of those things is, for example, um, hydration, um, how well hydrated you are or not, and the, the consequences of being either um, overhydrated, well hydrated, or underhydrated. Um, and what effect that has not only physically, but also psychologically, because um, typically, um, the effects of hydration, dehydration in particular, um, tend to get seen more um, from a, a cognitive psychological perspective, and only later do the physical um, uh, consequences come about. So, so really, what I wanted to do, as m most of my other research has been exercise and physical, physiological, I wanted to extend this hydration research into a more psychological cognitive domain, um, because actually that's typically where most people um, would see an effect. And so what you're looking at here is the effect that hydration levels have upon people's perception and experience of pain, both acute pain, but also longer lasting chronic pain. Yeah, that's right. Um, we wanted to look at um, how uh, the way that most people would become dehydrated, um, which is by not drinking enough, um, how that um, reflected on their pain experience, like you just said. And this is interesting to me because we hear a lot about people not drinking enough and recommendations around how much we should drink during a day in order to um, keep our well-being, our attention, our general sense of feeling okay with the world. But this is a very specific application of thinking about the impacts of um, adequate hydration. Yeah, it is. Um, you're right. I think probably since the 
or for decades, um, there's been a constant media message and, and so-called experts about how much we should be drinking. Um, and I guess the, the health cost and consequences of not drinking enough. Um, I think probably at this point, it's, it's really important to mention the fact that there isn't some kind of epidemic of chronic dehydration. Um, you know, it's not that people are um, unhealthy with not drinking enough, but because there's been such an amount of research done on hydration, largely because, of course, um, you can sell products, you can sell water, you can sell lots of other drinks, um, that we now know the consequences of either being well hydrated or being hypohydrated. Yes, it would be interesting to see and track the number of papers that have been published uh, correlated to the popularity of bottled water being sold uh, as opposed to free or at least very cheap uh, water being drunk out of the tap. Yeah, that's right. And not only that, but I think another area which um, really um, accelerated the the, um, uh, the research on hydration and dehydration was sports drinks. Um, and, and now we see, you know, in, in society, we see lots of people with a, a, you know, a standard sports drink or energy drink in their hand. And you think, well, is that, you know, what you perhaps should be having? Question mark. <laughs> Yeah, I get into this debate quite a lot with runners. Um, I run quite a lot and often we have quite a discussion around, well, when is it that you should be drinking a sports drink? When would it be useful in terms of performance and recovery as opposed to just sticking to water? And really, water is pretty, pretty OK um, until you get to a certain level of distance or time that you've been running. Yeah, I, I mean, my, I always have to be careful what I say because, you know, this um, how the body responds to exercise is, is my passion and my career. But in general, I, I think I like to stick with in healthy people. Um, the body's very clever um, and it has, it, it has withstood over time a lot of stress and strain. And, and hydration is one of those. You know, the body's made up of 70% water. We have a lot of water in our body. Therefore, even if we become dehydrated, we've got a, a huge reserve to draw on as long as it's only transient. Mm. Okay, so we have this interesting intersection here, I think, with this idea of hydration um, and how the body seems to be able to adapt so long as it's a, a transient, perhaps, interruption or outflow. But generally, as long as our hydration levels are okay, our body seems to be coping okay. But then we have very specific um, stresses that we know that we're exposed to in our environment. And the two big ones here are musculoskeletal kind of challenges that we have, perhaps, that we face through our daily lives or perhaps in our occupations through sitting poorly or our workstations not being set up correctly or other strains if you've got a more active job the way that you carry yourself the way that you uh, lift and interact in your environment and then we've also got more general stresses and strains um, that are have been identified as real challenges for people as they go through their lives so we have these two big um, we know that these are these are big exposures that um, people come across in terms of their risk of developing issues with their well-being and we have levels of hydration superimposed on top of that yeah um and and this is really where um i i, I hate using the word novel um but this is where um th this area of research is quite new and, and and hasn't covered a, a large amount because a lot of the hydration literature has has looked at what are the 
um, the cognitive consequences? What are the physical consequences? So in other words, what about decision making? What about mood? Um, and what about physical performance? Um, you know, can you um, exercise better? Or Whereas not a lot has been looked at in terms of um, something like pain. And, and the other thing about the hydration issue, of course, is that it's something that everyone um, does, should do. And therefore, in one sense, um, any kind of research onto hydration um, could speak to anyone, um, whether they're healthy, young, old, um, clinical population, because it's something that we typically do throughout the day or every day. Um, and so I was, I was really um, interested to see that um, there hadn't actually been a lot of research on, on hydration and its links to pain, but what there there was, there was a sort of an intermediary whereby um, hydration, in particular dehydration, affects many of the um, the mediators of things like musculoskeletal pain or pain that we have in chronic conditions. And this surprised me when I when I came across your research, Toby, because. You know, chronic pain affects a really large proportion of the population. Could you talk a little bit about the numbers and, and the proportions that we're talking about here and the, the types of pain that people are experiencing? Yeah, sure. Um, so chronic pain really, um, in terms of def definition, is, is pain that lasts longer than um, six months. Um, and uh, the, the prevalence is between about one in five and one in six worldwide. So, so that's, you know, 20% of the population potentially that have some sort of persistent pain. Um, the causes of which, of course, are, are hugely varied um, and could be things like arthritis, cancer, uh, cancer, like you said, musculoskeletal disorders, migraines. We also have pain that's... Um, uh, I guess more acute in the sense that many of us injure ourselves. We go through surgery. Um, that's uh, you know pre and post surgery. We have some form of pain. So so like you say, um, it, the prevalence of pain is is quite large. And then when you marry that up with you know what people should be doing in terms of um, drinking, we're talking to and about a large uh, number of people worldwide. And of course, when you were talking there, I was thinking about some of the recommendations that uh, we're given when we perhaps have to undergo something like surgery. Uh, and one of those recommendations is to limit our food intake and, and often our fluids as well. So I'm curious as to how that might impact things like how we sense pain or recovery from uh, painful issues when we are undergoing uh, or recovering from surgery. That's right. I mean, there's there's lots of instances where our normal um, food and and um, fluid um, patterns are disrupted. One of those is surgery, like you mentioned, whereby we're told nil by mouth, and of course, um, that's for medical reasons, both before and after surgery. Um, other instances, of course, are um, any any um, disruption of our fluids. So if, for example, there are, there are many occupations whereby um, just out of convenience, you might not want to go to the toilet often. So um, I typically bring up um, uh, occupations like if, if you're a pilot, um, anything where large amounts of concentration are, or if you're in an environment that's very hot and you have to sweat a lot, or very dry, again, like being in an airline cabin. Um, but there's lots of occupations where um, fluid 
taking on fluid and food is not something that we necessarily think about um, are, are, are difficult because for, for a lot of us that sit at a desk and can um, eat and drink roughly when we want, go to the toilet when we want, it's not a problem. Um, so yes, it, it, it starts to, to bring up um, problems and issues in people and populations that you haven't actually thought about because we think about eating and drinking as being something that all of us have access to and shouldn't really be a problem. But actually, there are quite a number of people who are recommended, told not to drink, or for whom drinking might not be something they want to do. I know lots of um, family members and whereby, you know, going to the toilet is a, is, is a, um, a big um, burden to them and, and they might um, therefore prevent themselves from drinking so as to not have to go to the toilet a lot. And of course, that brings about dehydration and the consequences of it. Yes. And as you're talking there, often, you know, people, uh, if they're a parent, uh, they're managing their children's fluid intake as well. Uh, And often they may choose to minimize that fluid intake because it's actually not particularly convenient for that child to be heading towards the toilet for one reason or another because of all the different things that parents have to manage. And that's interesting as well. Um, I'm thinking about all those self-management things that are really implicit and we may not necessarily be fully conscious of. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and this is, again, one of the areas when, when people ask me about, um, you know, what do you do? What's your area of research? And, and I, I generally say, well, things that don't really matter too much in life, whereas, whereas this um, saying to someone you should or shouldn't drink. Um, and, and what kind of drinking and what are the consequences of doing that? Um, like I say, it speaks to a lot of people. Of course, we have to look at different populations differently. So like you said, for instance, um, the young, the elderly um, should be treated slightly different to um, healthy adults. And, and in particular, there are differences, um, sex differences. There are also differences between healthy and diseased populations. So, Toby, let's move on to um, how you started tackling finding out more about this link between hydration levels and how pain is experienced. Okay. Um, well, um, we we were part of a group, so um, we've got um, physiologists on the one hand looking at the body, we've got psychologists on the other hand looking at the um, the brain, as it were. Um, and um, what we wanted to do was really have a look at. Um, First and foremost, how does hydration and pain normally come about? Now, hydration and dehydration um, is quite simple because experimentally, um, dehydration is usually um, uh, brought about by um, giving people diuretics so that they they urinate too much, by getting them to sweat in in heat or by exercising them on any combination of uh, of the three. And the thing is that this is something that doesn't actually happen in real life to a lot of people um, much. Therefore, we wanted to say, well, actually, dehydration is often brought about by people simply not drinking enough. They're, they're eating fine. They're, they're performing their normal daily routine. Um, and so that's, that's the first thing is that we wanted to actually mimic the way in which people became dehydrated. Um, Unfortunately, pain is slightly uh, more difficult um, because there's lots of different types of pain, um, ways of bringing it about, and also um, different populations experience different kinds of pain. Um, I guess one of the things is that pain doesn't have to be associated with some kind of damage. Um, and and uh, a certain test, the, the um, cold presser test, um, 
has been previously shown to be, I guess, the best surrogate of, of chronic pain that disease um, states might bring about. So the, chronic, uh, the, the cold presser test is, is simply putting your feet into or feet or hands into cold water, and that brings about a, a very painful cold stimulus. So that was the first thing is that we, we wanted to make sure that our, our interventions, pain and hydration or dehydration, were relevant to the vast majority of the people and weren't just some experimental paradigm. Sure. So you've got the cold presser task, which is widely used, and I think you've described it. So you've got a good way of triangulating your results to the wider literature upon how pain is experienced and perceived. But you've also got this quite ecologically valid um, way of trying to mimic or reproduce how people become dehydrated in their daily lives. And you're trying to put those two together. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and what we wanted to also do is, um, again, previous research, there's been so much research done on hydration and dehydration, but previous research hadn't, for example, controlled um, people's diet, caffeine intake, um, and, and sleep. Um, and what we wanted to do, all known things that affect pain and also affect. And so we wanted to try and as much as possible um, cross a very well um, experimentally controlled um, study with an ecologically valid study. So, yeah, that's where we, we tried to keep anything that would affect pain yeah, um, constant. And then we wanted to, to um, induce our um, intervention by the way in which most people become dehydrated, which is just not drinking enough. So our, our sorry, if I can just, um, our dehydration um, intervention was just getting them to have no... Um, fluids or high water content food for a total of 24 hours. Now, in, in practice, that was actually quite simple because half of that 24 hours is, of course, when we're sleeping, which is when most people don't take on fluid or food. And so in reality, um, it was a 12-hour um, abstention of um, fluid and high water content foods. So it's like drinking very little throughout the course of a working day. Mm. So once you'd... Um deprive these people of water um, yep. and you looked at their reactions to this cold presser task and you'd controlled for as many of the other variables as we know are linked to perhaps how people experience pain. What did you find in terms of the differences between those people who had had enough water and those people who had not and how they experienced pain? Okay, so from a, a physical point of view, um, the, the, the physical responses of our participants, as soon as they put their um, feet into ice-cold water, they responded um, very similarly um, to all the other studies that have been done when you give someone a painful stimulus. So we saw their, um, their blood pressure and their heart rate skyrocket, um, and they, um, they had very obvious signs of, of painful stimuli. So um, in, the, in the physical study that looked at the physiological responses, the only really um, noteworthy result was the fact that people's brain blood flow was slightly altered in that um, um, blood flow was reduced compared to their, um, their normally hydrated um, trial. So the only um, real impact of this was it, because the cold presser test is used as a clinical, often a clinical measure, not so much for pain, um, but for testing people's cardiovascular responses, um, that arm of the study just said, well, if you're going to be using the, the cold presser test, then we suggest that you standardize people's hydration 
um, going into the test because actually their hydration state, whether they're well hydrated or dehydrated, might influence the results of the cold presser in terms of the cardiovascular responses. So that was the, the physical side of things. Um, more from a, um, an affect and a psychological point of view, um, we found that, again, unsurprisingly, when you've got your limbs in very um, cold water, this is sort of between naught and three degrees, um, people's pain responses were quite high. Um, but we found that the more dehydrated they became, um, that drove and was um, predicted their um, their actual pain response. So, um, in essence, um, when when people were dehydrated, um, and also the people who became even more dehydrated, their pain sensitivities was much higher. Okay, so that's interesting, and I, I think you also measured another thing, didn't you? It was this idea of how much people worry about pain. That's right. Yeah. So uh, in between what we what we found, um, there's been one or two studies before looking at catastrophization. Um, catastrophizing is really how much you amplify a worry. Um, and um, we we had hypothesized that by um, increasing your um, your anxiety and um, and worrying about things, that might be how um, the the pain is increased or decreased, as it were. Um, and we found that, that that was a very good proxy in the sense that um, catastrophization was higher when people uh, came in dehydrated. So there, there does appear to be a good link between, um, well, previously there'd been a link between anxiety and depression and hydration uh, sorry, and pain. And and so the, we took that a step further and said, well, not so much looking at general anxiety um, and depression, but what about a specific um, catastrophization, worrying, a specific over-worrying? Um, and that, that seemed to be true. Um, people, when they were dehydrated, they um, worried, uh, ruminated more, and this also led to um, an increased pain um, stimulus or sensitivity. That's an interesting um, finding, I think. The fact that these people who are dehydrated tended to worry about pain more. Do you think that there's a causal link there? Or what's the relationship there between those two variables? Um, well, <laughs> this is where it gets a little bit tricky because um, there, there does seem to have been um, research um, looking into um, the, uh, I guess, the structural brain responses of, of um, dehydration and pain. Um, I would like to say that it is a causal one. However, um, these were um, state um, um, state um, conditions, and one of the problems is that we had a relatively uh, even split of people who were, I don't want to call them habitually, but who even at baseline before their intervention, um, they seemed to be quite high um, catastrophizers or worriers versus there were some that were um, lower. And and so I guess when we, when we looked at the data more closely, and we've got another paper which um, spoke to this, um, it was those that um, already had high worrying and catastrophization who seemed to be affected um, more by the hydration intervention. So I guess in a way that does speak to it being um, causal and perhaps, I don't want to say genetic, but it's a pre-existing thing whereby um, people are, are probably um, naturally bigger worriers. And therefore, if you 
um, affect their um, their behavior in any way and their control, um, that might lead to a detriment. Okay, so this catastrophizing, this pain worrying seems to be more of a trait or a personality characteristic that people bring along with them to this interaction between their dehydration state and going through a stressful, painful experience that seems to amplify their pain experience. Is that a one way of seeing this? Yeah, I'd say that's a, a very good way of, of probably summarizing it. And what we what we hope to do um, in the, in the next phase is is exactly look at that whether this is a um, um, uh, a, a, a trait thing whereby um, if you were to chronically change something, so for example, if you were to over a, a number of weeks have similar interventions, would those people who naturally worry more um, display consistent responses if you changed their um, hydration, for example, versus people who had naturally lower um, worrying and, and catastrophization? So you're bringing me on to um, the crux here, Toby. Um, who should care about this? Because I can think of a, a few implications here around possible interventions, but who should care about this? And, and what are the implications of what it is that this uh, line of research that you're engaged in is is pointing you towards? Well, the obvious thing is basically um, anyone that has pain, preferably chronic, but um, whereby um, there are um some kind of um, interventions that are already been doing. So um, um, cognitive behavioral therapy or um, analgesia, people taking painkillers. Um, so that could, I mean, the, the painkiller speaks to anyone who's, who's trying to treat pain. Um, but cognitive behavioral therapy, anyone with chronic pain, um, pre-post-surgery um, that has some kind of condition where they're managing the pain, um, clinically in particular, if um, if there is some kind of uh, practice and treatment to reduce someone's pain. If they are um, underhydrated, if they're badly hydrated, that may be confounding some of their pain issues. Um, so, so to answer your question, really, anyone that seems to be experiencing persistent pain um, and wants to improve it, or at least wants to have any kind of treatment have a better effect, should potentially look at not being dehydrated, but actually in drinking enough so that the pain is reduced is that you know in, in terms of the results of our study and of course that brings up the question of how much is enough uh, and that's really difficult but do you have are there any recommendations around how people can tell as to whether they are adequately hydrated or not yeah well so the first thing i just by answering your question um the first thing i want to say is our studies um specifically looked at when people came in normally hydrated versus dehydrated. Um, now, there was one interesting finding, which is that normally people are actually often a little bit dehydrated. Chronically, a large part of the population doesn't drink, oh, I don't want to say doesn't drink enough, but we spend a large part of our day not drinking enough. We tend to then compensate. So, what we haven't looked at here is it, what happens when you really hydrate people well. Effectively, if you um, hyper or overhydrate them, now that brings about um, a problem in itself. In that um, we've we've done a bit of a pilot study, and um, people are creatures of habit, and if generally speaking they normally drink a certain amount, if you try and increase that, you know, I don't want to say force water down their throat, but if if you give them too much fluid, they might actually 
experience that as being just as negative because of some of the consequences, for instance, having to go to the toilet more or feeling bloated. Um, so that, that's a really important thing whereby um, w- what we haven't tested is does being very hydrated, well hydrated, um, have a positive or the opposite effect of being dehydrated? But to answer your other question, there are very simple ways in which people can, um, I guess, measure their hydration. One of the easiest, simplest ways is just take your body weight. One of the best ways of looking at how um, how your diet, that includes food and um, fluid, goes, is first thing out of bed, just hop on a pair of scales. And if you do that three or four days a week, what you'll see is a, a general rolling average. Um, and as long as that doesn't change too much or day on day, week on week, it stays the same, then you're probably reasonably well hydrated. Another very simple way, which, of course, most people don't necessarily want to do, but is the obvious way, is um, just looking at your pee, looking at your urine. Um, depending on how concentrated and yellow it is, that tends to suggest being a bit more dehydrated, like we are first thing in the morning when we just have had a night of not drinking, versus when people's urine is relatively clear, it also doesn't smell much, um, that tends to suggest that people are better hydrated. So there's some very simple ways um, that you can just look um, and, and measure your own hydration state. Thanks so much, Toby. Um, I was just wondering if there is anything else that you wanted to add about the possible implications um, in terms of uh, cost savings, because that's one of the other big implications for chronic pain is that it actually costs quite a lot to manage, um, not just for the individual, but also for the society who's trying to provide the health system to uh, care for their population. Yeah, um, it, it, recent studies have shown that um, um, the cost per person with chronic pain is is about eleven thousand um, dollars per year. So, so when we're talking about um, something simple like um, just drinking a little bit more, we could be saving um, society um, and, and individual people quite a lot of money just by simply having them drink a little bit more or being well hydrated. And that wraps it up for season one. I hope you've enjoyed this final show, the 10th show in this first season. You can find the abstract and link to the paper in the show notes to this podcast, or if you go to the website, whocareswhatsthepoint.com. If this is the first time that you've tuned in, please don't forget that there are nine episodes before this one, so please subscribe and have a listen to all of these. And don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter at WCWTP or me, your host and producer, Saab Johal, at Saab. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to this week's show and the previous shows. Please send me feedback through any channel, Facebook, YouTube or Twitter, or even through the email address, contact at whocareswhatsthepoint.com. I'll see you again in the next two or three weeks when we kick off with season two of Who Cares, What's the Point? The podcast about the mind for people who think.